It's my privilege this morning to introduce your chapel speaker. And when I think of the name Skakravat, two things come to mind. And that's his love for the Master's College, and his concern for the integrity of its ministries that support it, and his concern for the body of students here at the college. So with that, please welcome your ASB president, Skakravat. Am I on? Come on, loud and clear. You know, here at the college, worship is, is, as you know, more than singing. It's also the preaching of the Word of God. And I really want to commend you guys for a minute and uh, let you know that I'm really thankful that you guys adhere to that commitment that the Master's College has. And I think that commitment really fleshes out in chapel planning. And, you know, we spend hour upon hour in chapel planning really trying to make sure that the speaker that comes up to you here in chapel really is, you know, really is committed and really, you know, has a message to preach. And on Monday, I was just really excited that you guys, you know, stuck there and stuck with him. You know, I went to lunch with Dave after it was over. And he was, he was expressing to me that he was excited that people in the front row were looking him in the eye and it didn't even, it didn't even, he didn't even catch on. It was great. So just, you know, thanks for just commendation there. For you. He's not here. He's not here, but I thought it'd be hysterical. I can't, I want to see him when he hears the tape. That'd be hysterical. Uh, wow. By way of introduction today, um, I'm in Second Peter chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to there. The topic to which Peter addresses in 2 Peter 1, I believe, is a matter that is very confusing to the mind and very pressing on the heart of every believer. And if you have spent uh, minimal time in the Word of God, you've probably run across this divine paradox that still is boggling to my mind, and that is sanctification. Sanctification being the process whereby we are moved to further Christ-likeness. I say it's a paradox and it's, and it's hard to understand and hard to grasp because Scripture is very clear. It's very clear concerning two parts of sanctification. One, it's very, very clear that sanctification is all completely and totally a work of God apart from us. 100%. But at the same time, Scripture is very clear that we are responsible to grow in Christ. And that we are responsible to live out the life that Christ is in us. So on one hand, you have this paradox where it's all God's doing and it's all my responsibility. I think you can best see that in Philippians. In chapter 1, Paul says, uh, it is God who... Let me see. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. It's God's job that's going to carry it on and not let us down. But at the same time, in Philippians 4, Paul turns around and looks like he's... Turning his back on what he said when he turns to Philippians 4 and he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we have that paradox of, wait a minute, is it my responsibility or is it completely God's responsibility? And I think scripture is, by the way, I think there's a reason it happens like that. I think the reason is this. That paradox ensures that all glory will always go to God. In, in this way. If we grow in our Christian lives and if we are and if we are growing and yielding fruit we can always turn around and say you know it's not me it's God 
It's, it's, and give all the glory back to God for what He's done in our life. But at the same time, if we are stagnant in our Christian lives, we can never say, God, it's all your fault. Because He's commissioned us the responsibility to grow. So the paradox is, is worked out in such a way that all glory will eventually go to God. And I think that's why that paradox is seen in Scripture over and over again. What I was going to say is that the solution to that paradox, I think, is very clear in Scripture as well. And the solution being a trumpet clarion call to discipline in our Christian lives. At the same time, it's, it's God's work. Over and over again, Paul commends us to discipline and to discipline yourself. He said in 1 Timothy 4, he said it very well when he said, uh, he told Timothy, he said, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That word discipline is, is the Greek word, and when I say it, you're going to say, oh, it's gymnazo. You hear that? It's gymnasium. Literally, discipline. Paul is literally telling Timothy, Timothy, get into the weight room and work out your spiritual muscles. And make sure that you're strong in your faith. And that you're disciplining yourself daily for the end result of godliness. And scripture over and over again is, uh, is pushing us in that direction. And then he, he went on in that passage in 1 Timothy 4 to say, For bodily discipline is of little profit, whereas godliness is profitable for all things, because it holds promise for both this life and the life to come. Saying that, whereas uh, bodily exercise profits us, it only profits us a little because it's only temporary. And in the same realm where working out in the gym profits us physically, spiritual discipline to all the more profits us spiritually because it holds promise not only for this life. It's not temporary. It's eternal. It goes on. So, you see the paradox, and it's hard to understand, and it still boggles my mind how both can be true. But the answer is over and over again, discipline in your Christian lives. Um, it has been clear that while, you know, growth is God's work and it's our responsibility, uh, we are always responsible to, to do that. So, therefore, we can define spiritual growth, as I have written it down in our lives, as, quote, God's active intervention into our lives through the means of our discipline to further us on towards a more Christ-like pattern of life. One theologian, Burkhoff, said it very well, better than I could ever. And when he said, it's the work of God in which believers cooperate. Catch that? Sanctification is the work of God, all the work of God, in which we cooperate. And I think that defines sanctification well. If there was, if there was a person in the New Testament, excuse me for a minute. If there was a New Testament believer that best exemplified what it means to grow in Christ. I think it was Peter. I think you see Peter in the Gospels as an impulsive man. One who, who commonly would act before he thought and who would speak before he thought. For, for example, in the Garden, it was Peter who, when approached with all the Roman guards, said, we're going to take Christ. He pulls out a sword. He cuts off the ear of the high priest going for his head. Before he could even think that Christ had told him over and over again, I've got to go, I've got to die. He doesn't even think. He just pulls out his sword and he tries to cut the head off someone. Just like that. That, that was Peter. Very impulsive. Very. It was Peter who uh, rebuked Christ when Christ said, I have to die. It was Peter to whom Christ said, get thee behind me, Satan, in his impulsiveness. And it was Peter who, while Christ was in a kangaroo court hopping around from, from governor to governor... Peter was 
warming his hands by a fire and denied Christ three times, ever knowing him. And that once in front of a young girl. I mean, if there's anyone you can stand up to, it, I mean, I think the point's made. You know? The, the most, the person that would fear me least is a little girl. You know, I mean, it doesn't get any smaller than that. It's kind of like Dave Maddox, you know, um, rebuking or denying Christ in front of Dave Maddox's baby girl. I mean, it I don't care what she thinks. That's the point that's being made by a little girl coming up to Peter. That the lowest of all lows, Peter has ultimately denied his Christ. And that's what you see in the Gospels over and over again. That Peter being an impulsive man. But, if you look in the Gospel of John, you read that over, you turn a couple pages to the book of Acts. And Peter stands up in front of 120 people and he initiates leadership and says, listen, Judas is gone and we have to replace him. And then the next day, it turns out the day of Pentecost and in front of the whole known world, he stands up and he says, ye men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem and he preaches the gospel to literally representatives from every tribe and nation in the world. Now, where did this change take place? I mean, where did he move from impulsive to the leader that he was? And Paul made mention in Galatians chapter 2, one of the earliest epistles, he called Peter a pillar of the church. Remember that? And then in 1 Corinthians, he made mention of, of people breaking away and forming little sects, saying, I am of Peter, I am of Cephas. Because his popularity had grown and his leadership was so strong that people were actually trying to follow him over Christ. What happened here, Peter? You know, Peter had really grown somewhere along the line. And I think the growth happened in, in John chapter 21. Don't turn there, but... Lately, if, you, if you've been to Grace Community, if you've heard Dr. MacArthur, what he's been speaking on is that of looking into the face of Christ. And he's made the point very, very profoundly, I think, that to the, to the degree in which you look into the face of Christ is the degree to where your troubles seem to dim, like the hymn writer said. And it's the degree to where you're stronger in your faith and you're growing more to the degree you're looking into the face of Christ. And then he made, the, he made the point that Old Testament saints didn't have a clear look in, he couldn't look clearly into the face of God. And us New Testament saints have a better, clearer picture of what Christ is. How much more should we look into the face of Christ? Not only that, when we finally, ultimately are able to look directly into his face, 1 John 3 says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So scripture, remember again, makes the point that the more you gaze upon the face of Christ, the more you grow. Peter, in John chapter 21, came face to face, not with the Old Testament God, and not with the New Testament Christ. He came face to face with the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. And not only that, it was, it was Christ who asked him three times and said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter answered incorrectly twice. And the third time, Peter kind of, it kind of clicked and it all started to happen, and, and, and Christ said to him, Peter, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, correctly. And, I mean, we can still hear the words ringing in all of our ears when Christ looked at him in the eyes and said, feed my sheep. And that, to Peter, standing in front of the resurrected Christ, gazing on the face of ultimate perfection, and that perfection looking back at him and commanding him to feed my sheep, I think was a turning point in Peter's life. Peter turned from his impulsiveness and, and all the old characteristics that he had and he said, you know what? He said, for some reason or another, that look and that gaze intently into the face of Christ changed me to the point where he could stand up in Acts chapter 2 in front of the representative of the whole world 
and preach the gospel where months before he had denied it in front of a little girl. And those two extremes, I think, the little girl and the whole world are presented to us for that very reason. To show that in that period of time, Peter had grown. So I say to you with conviction that if there is a person in the New Testament that knows what it means to grow, it was Peter. And my, am I glad he wrote two New Testament epistles. When it comes to the matter of spiritual growth, I know I'm responsible for it. And I know I need to grow and I have to learn how to grow. Where should I go to learn the best about growth? Scripture is holding up in my face. Go to Peter. Look at Peter. So it's with that that I take you to 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And address the issue of, of sanctification in, in Peter's life. And Peter used, Peter used the term grow, I think, seven or eight times in both those epistles. And... The word that he used for grow is literally, and I wrote it down because I can never remember it exactly, to increase akin to the analogy of God's operation in nature. It really is exactly what it sounds like, grow. It's, it's the pattern of the uh, flower that you plant the seed and it grows up and blossoms. The, the point from which it goes from seed to flower is called growth. And that's what I think Peter was trying to represent when he used that, that nature term. It's the... the Transition that we go from seed to full blossom, from being born again to being made like him when we see him as he is. That process is called growth and theologically defined in the New Testament by Paul as sanctification. And that's what Peter's using when he said that word eight times or seven times in both of his epistles. Look at Second Peter chapter one, and I think purposely Peter jumps right into this to this whole issue of what it means to grow. In verses 1 to 4, Peter talks about um, what I've termed in my humble outline, the precedent to growth. And in verses 5 to 9, Peter describes a pattern of growth. And then in verse 10, he describes a perseverance of growth. So just keeping that outline. That's the outline I'm going to work from. But we're also going to try to stick as close as we can to Peter's outline. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter starts out and says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who have received a faith the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Peter starts out and says, listen, the precedent to true spiritual growth, or what must, must precede true spiritual growth, is true spiritual conversion. And he starts to define salvation. Look how he defines it. Simon Peter, a bondservant of the Apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith. True Spiritual conversion is always talked about in, in the New Testament as those who have received. Not those who have gotten, not those who have taken, those who have received. And we're coming up once again with the, where the divine and the human mix when it comes to election, but it's clear and clear and clear and clear that salvation is a receiving act on no one's part. It's all... God giving to us and us being aware of what's happening, giving, being given the faith to accept it. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I think, describes it best. You all know the verse, it's for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves is the gift of God, lest no man should boast. And usually, when you think of those verses, you think, for by grace you have been saved, and the grace is the gift that God has given you, and that's not the point that Paul's making there. The point that Paul's making is, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And the faith is not of yourselves. The faith is the gift of God. 
lest, lest any man should boast. And if once you come to grips with your true spiritual, true spiritual life before you were saved, you'll understand why. Because Paul in Ephesians 2 describes you as dead in your trespasses and sins. And pretty much when there's a dead man on the ground, you kick him in the face, he's not going to say, ow, because he's dead. So it's the same principle. When you're spiritually dead, you can, you can be shoved the gospel at as many times as, as many times as possible, and you can have it crammed down your throat. But it's only God who can raise the dead. And it's only God who can raise the spiritually dead. So the faith that you and I have now, it's the faith that we have received, not that we have taken. So the precedence of true spiritual growth is true, true spiritual conversion. And the description of the, of the first true spiritual conversion is who have received a faith. The second description, Peter says, is those who have received a faith, the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Any, any spiritual gospel, any gospel that does not leave a sinner with the full righteousness of God accredited to his life is a false gospel. When Peter describes the gospel of God, he describes it as, one, a faith that you have received, and two, the righteousness of God imparted to the believer. Romans, Romans 2.17 states it, For in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. According to Peter, the description of the true gospel is one that takes a dead man and grants him the faith to believe that through God's grace he can acquire the righteousness of, of God and that faith will result in spiritual growth. So, the precedent to true spiritual growth is what? True salvation. And Peter describes it as one, a faith that you receive and two, the righteousness of God imparted to your life. And then he goes on and he describes the results of that salvation. After he describes the description of true salvation, he shows us the results of that salvation. And he gives us two results. And it's right there, verses 3 and 4. The first result, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And then he goes on and says, for by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The two results of true salvation is one, that you and I have been given everything we could ever possibly need for life and for godliness. Do you, would you, can you come to grips with that fact that God has not left anything out when it comes to our sanctification? He's given us literally every spiritual resource at our fingertips. I mean, and when you sit back and you have to catalog, you just say, wow, you know, when you start to think about him, it's Ephesians 1.3 says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's given us, uh, he's given us the word, the disciplines of daily, of daily Bible reading. He's given us his revelation in book form so that we can read and study. He's given us a direct access to him through prayer. He's giving us, he's given us the church that is, whose whole purpose and mission is to equip us to live godly lives. Not only that, he's given us the spirit to live within us. So that we can live those lives out. He, he's given us a new regenerated mind. He's given us a regenerated conscience to know what, what right and wrong is. He's given us literally everything we need for life and godliness, Peter said. Therefore, there is no excuse. Whatever, whatever the trial or the temptation may be, the excuse is never there not to make the godly decision because you can't say, but wait, I didn't have everything I needed. Or, but God... I need, I need this. I need something else. There's absolutely no excuse ever. And henceforth, again, all glory once again goes to God. The true, true spiritual salvation, remember, is a faith that is received. 
And it is the righteousness of God imparted to your life. The results of two spiritual salvation are one, God giving you everything you could ever ask for when it comes to spiritual life. And two, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, escaping the corruption, the corruption of the world by its lust. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness, and he's given us the ability to partake, literally, of the divine nature. And you have to kind of... That phrase, it's kind of a weird phrase, and it, it rings... To me, when I read that phrase, I read, that doesn't sound like a... It should be a New Testament phrase. That, is, that sounds like some kind of cultish, heretical saying. And you know why it sounds like that? I'll tell you exactly why it sounds like that. Because it is. That was a common saying in the day of Peter. A common sect that had branched off Christianity and was a, a cult sect of Christianity had made the claims that you upon salvation are God, literally, are made little gods, kind of like a Mormon faith that they believe today, that literally you're imparted divinity and you are just like God. So Peter sees, hey, you know what? Wham, bam, I can, I can combat heresy and spit forth truth in the same sentence. So he's using the Gnostic heretical phrase in a biblical way. When he says, for by those precious promises, he's granted to us to become partakers of the divine nature. Now, we become partakers of the divine nature in the sense that at salvation, as I said, we have the perfect righteousness of God imparted to our lives. And also we become, we are partakers of the divine nature that through our lives, it is, as Paul said, not I, but him. You know, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The fact that in our sanctification, it's still the divine nature. And then in 1 John 3, when we finally, at the close of history, it'll be the ultimate divine nature and we'll be made like him for we shall see him as he is. So, God has given us those resources at our salvation. One, everything we need for life and godliness. And two, becoming partakers of, of a divine nature that enables us to more constantly push and strive towards Christ's likeness. That's the precedent to spiritual growth in verses 1 and 2. Now we move on in verse um, 4, actually 5, 6, 7, and 8, and 9, and get to the bulk of what Peter's saying. Remember, it's Peter who knows more about spiritual growth, possibly, than any other New Testament saint. It's Peter who knows it up here, and Peter who knows it right here. It's Peter who's actually been transformed by the principles he's about to share. And literally, this is the literal grunt work of, of working out our salvation. This is Peter telling us exactly what we need to add to our faith to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ. Remember, it was, it was Peter, not Tim James Meany, who wrote, My friends may grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is a Tim James Meany song, but he's, he's taken it off what Peter wrote. And Peter, being the man who knew the most about growth, I believe, in the New Testament is giving us right here, literally, a framework on which we can build our lives. Literally, he's going to list character traits which should be involved in the life of every, of every believer. And he starts off in verse 5. Now, for this very reason, also, the very reason being what? True salvation. It's results, and it's... How do you describe it? Before? Anyway, it's a result. For this very reason, applying all diligence. That's First Timothy 4. That's working out your spiritual muscles. That's discipline. For this very reason that God has saved us and given us everything we need, apply 
all of your diligence and work. And in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Let's take a couple minutes, if, if we can, and look at each one of those words and see exactly what it is that Peter is telling us to add to our faith. Notice that Peter tells us to add it to our faith. Faith being the, the beginning and the end of the Christian life. As Paul said it in Romans, our Christian life is from faith to faith. Literally from faith to faith to faith to faith to faith. It goes on ad infinitum. But it's from beginning, beginning by faith and ending by faith. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians says what? We live by faith and not by sight. So Peter's telling us, to this faith, add to this faith. And he gives us the first character trait, which is moral excellence. The, that word there, excellence, is translated goodness, goodness in the NIV. It makes the connotation, but I don't think it's the same, the same term that Peter was trying to use. When Peter said excellence, literally meaning excellence of achievement or mastery in a specific field. For, for example, I carry a buck knife. Ooh, I usually carry a buck knife. But, and I wanted to use it as an illustration, I forgot to put it on. But, my buck knife is an illustration of the New Testament Greek word excellence. Because my buck knife was made to cut. And, I'll tell you what, my buck knife cuts. It only does one thing good, and boy, does it do it good, because I sharpen that puppy down. And it, that's, that's the New Testament term, excellence. A knife was made to cut, so when it cuts good, it's called what? Excellent. It's called, it's called perfect. It's, ma- it's doing exactly what it's made for. And Peter says, listen, add to your faith moral excellence. The excellence that Peter says is morality. Literally, knowing the difference between right and wrong. And Hebrews 8 describes the mature Christian as one who can discern right from wrong. And Peter's saying, listen, add to that faith, from faith to faith to faith, add to that excellence and morality. Not only know what's right and wrong, not only live what's right and wrong, but show what is right and wrong. The Christian pretty much is the only person left in our society with an inch of morals. In, in the city where I'm from, and even in my parents that are unsaved, it is amazing to me when I find a, Christ, a non-Christian that has some kind of morality. Because now the world is an amoral world. It's right if it's right to you, and it's, and it's wrong if it's wrong to you. It doesn't really matter. There is no standard. There are no real morals. And Peter is saying, listen, for this reason, add to your faith excellence and morality. Excellence. That means you, Christian, were created to live morally. And just like my buck knife is made to cut, you were made for morals and made to live with morality. You need to do that to the best of your ability. That needs to be the first character that you pile on top of your faith is moral excellence. And the second one is knowledge. He says, add to your faith moral excellence to your moral excellence knowledge. Knowledge literally is exactly, there's no hidden agenda there. Peter's saying exactly like he wants to say it. Knowledge. Right there. Add to your faith knowledge. It's what we need to study that's in question. And there's, there's no question in our minds, of course, what, what we need to have knowledge in. And our knowledge is right here. It's in the Word. So Peter's telling us to add to your faith moral excellence. 
add to your moral excellence knowledge and in knowledge he says add to your knowledge self-control this I'll just be pretty much upright with you this is pretty much my my soapbox now I'm about to get on so you're going to have to bear with me self-control the word has a very specific meaning and if you look in verse 2 let me just read it to you uh, chapter 2 I'm sorry Second Peter chapter 2 he says but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly induce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves and this, then he describes them and listen to this description this is great false teachers and many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be maligned in their greed they will exploit you with false words their judgment is from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep self-control is the exact opposite of lust and greed that's out of control especially with false teachers and the false teachers in Peter's day literally were out of control their system of worship was temple prostitution as you know so Peter, I think actually the New Testament authors might have made up this word. This isn't a very common word in Greek literature. So the guess is that the New Testament is the first time to ever use this word. It's a combination of two words, sometimes translated restrain. And the two words symbolically show the exact, it's like a, it's the exact opposite of wanton, lust. So the word was pretty much made up by Peter or by Paul. And it's translated in our, in our English versions as, as self-discipline. And we need to add, not only to our faith moral excellence, not only to our moral excellence knowledge, we need to add to our knowledge self-discipline. Working out from our head, going all the way down our arms and out of our fingers. That's wisdom. It's, it's how to live your day-to-day life. And we need to add to our knowledge up here, we need to add to that self-control. To where we can... Resist, resist sin and flee from sin and be the exact opposite of what the false teachers were in their wanton lust. Not only that, he says, after self-control, he says we need to add to our faith perseverance. Perseverance is another interesting word. It, we go from faith to moral excellence to knowledge to self-control and from self-control to perseverance. Perseverance is a combination of two words, hypo and mene in the Greek. Hypo meaning under, and mene is the Greek verb original root form, to abide. Literally meaning to abide under. To be able to withstand. And it's an interesting word because it's translated two ways. It's either translated in the active tense or in the passive tense. Usually, when it's passive, it's translated patience. The same word, when it's passive and when it sits back, it's kind of a, a stand your ground would be hupomene in the passive tense. Here, it's not translated passively at all. It's translated actively. For that reason, it's translated perseverance. It's not just standing your ground. It's every time you have the chance to move forward, you take it and then you stand your ground. It's, it's different. It's that Christian virtue which is different than just not moving. It's the Christian virtue of not only when trials come your way, you're not just taking them and t- burying your chest and getting punched at. You're literally walking forward and beating the trial. There are trials in the New Testament that, and the trials that Peter's people are going through were trials of intense persecution. Christians dying off by the dozens daily, purposely, 
under persecution. Martyrs, left and right. And Peter's telling them, listen, the time has come for Christians to stop taking it at the chest in patience. And the time has come to actively withstand and actively to abide under that. And literally walk forward and combat the trials that are coming at us. Whatever, whatever it takes. It's, it's the courage of our Christian life. It's, it's the heart that says, whatever it takes is what I'm going to do. It's, it's the heart of the hymn writer when he says, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy. And he says, take my mind and take my feet and let them... That's the heart of the hymn writer. That's the actively pursuing against the trial that's come against your life. And Peter tells us to apply to our faith moral excellence, to apply to our moral excellence knowledge, to our knowledge self-control, and to our self-control perseverance. The, the train is now moving forward, folks. The train has stopped in the mind, in Peter's, in Peter's opinion, and it's now walking forward, and it's now actively resisting what it needs to resist. And actively pursuing Christ-likeness. Not waiting for it to come, but actively running out and getting it. And that's, that's what Peter's trying to convey now. And when he says, add to your perseverance, godliness. Godliness is, is that kind of, it's the piety, it's obedience, it's pietous obedience. I don't know how else to say it. It's obedience and reverence. It's I obey because of the fear of God. God is so big, I am so small, God is God and I am not. For that reason, I obey. That is godliness. Godliness has a connotation of complete respect for who God is. Godliness is Isaiah 6. After Isaiah seeing the face of God, the train of his robe filling the temple, he says, Lord, hear my, send me. In response to all of who God is, and in response to pure respect and fear for God, it's Godliness is me in obedience out of response to the respect of God. And Peter says you need to add that to your faith, to your knowledge, to your moral excellence, to your self-control, and to your perseverance. You need to add the obedience and respect, pietous obedience to God. And he says on top of the pietous experience to God, you need to add um, brotherly kindness, often translated you know, it's the phileo word. It's the second word of love. It's what, Dom, it's what Dr. MacArthur was... Ooh, I almost, it's what Dr. MacArthur was talking about. The first three days of chapel. It's fellowship. And the point there is made. I don't even need to stress it. It's been, it's been made. And you need to add to your brotherly kindness, you need to add love. Which is a self-sacrificial giving of yourself for others. And Peter says, listen, I know more about anything than growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And here it is, folks. Add to your faith, moral excellence, knowledge, perseverance, self-control, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And you're adding and you're building. And then it's what Paul described in Colossians and in Ephesians, that the man of God is equipped for every good work. And he labored and strived to present every man complete in Christ with all these attributes in place, firmly fixed, a man of God or a woman of God, ready to do the will of God. Peter's saying, I know, here I am, I know more about it than anyone else, and these are the exact specific virtues that every Christian needs to work on. So once he showed us the precedent to growth, salvation, and results, he showed us the pattern of growth, add to your faith, he shows us in verse 10, the perseverance of growth. 
And he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. When it comes to describing fruit in the life of a Christian, it's inevitable that the discussion will always turn to salvation. And every pastor and every preacher and even Peter did it. When you start to think about what it means to live a fruitful Christian life, you always have to throw it in that, hey, if the fruit is not there, maybe the salvation never was. And you will know them by your fruits. That's what Peter's doing here. He's throwing it in on the sideline. He's saying, hey, make all the more certain his choosing and his calling of you. And then he describes, look at, look at verse 8 and 9. I, I, we don't have much time to cover them, but I was going to cover them. Now I think I am going to cover them. Verses 8 and 9, Peter lists these whole attributes. And then verse 8, he describes two people. One in verse 8 and one in verse 9. And the first person he describes is, if these qualities are yours. Peter says, if these qualities are yours, you will never be, and this is my paraphrase, you will never be useless nor fruitless in the knowledge of God. If these qualities are yours, and what? What does your Bible say? Increasing. If your life is involved with the increasing of these attributes on stacking on top of each other to make yourself into the man or the woman of God that God wants you to be, you will never be useless in the body of Christ. You will never have any cause to be fruitless in the body of Christ. This is exactly what it means to be useful and fruitful is to be applying these things to your life. And the second person he describes in verse 9, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from sins. Guys, if these qualities are yours, Peter says it's because you've forgotten the grace of God that gave you salvation in the first place. And he makes an appeal to obedience in our Christian lives through God's grace and God's mercy instead of his justice. He made an appeal to obedience through justice when he said godliness. And now he's making an appeal through God's grace when he says, if you're not doing these things, it's because you're blind. You've forgotten what it means to be saved. That, once again, is the heart of the hymn writer when he said in a... Oh, I knew I'd forget the name of that hymn. I was singing it this morning. It was, um, Bind my heart to thee like a fetter. Come thou font of every blessing. The last, the last stanza, it's, Bind my heart to thee like a feather because of thy goodness, it's said in such a way, and I forgot the way it's said. Look it up later on. <laughs> look, get a hymn book and look it up. But it's that attitude of because of God's grace and because of God's goodness, I'm daily, that's what it is. I got it. This is great. <laughs> because of God's grace, daily I am constrained to thee, is the way he put it. It's beautiful. It's out of response to God's grace to me. I live in obedience. Paul called it in Romans chapter 6, a slave to righteousness. And you got these whole stacks on top of each other. And Paul said, and Peter's saying, if, you, if you've got them, you'll never be useless and fruitless. If you don't have them, you've forgotten what it means to experience the grace of God. Go and experience it again. And then when he closes up, he says, Therefore, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and about his election and his choosing to you. Because when you're talking about fruit, you inevitably have to reach the point to say, Listen, if you don't got it, maybe you never had it. And then after that, in verse 10, he says, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. The perseverance of true Christian growth. As long as you're practicing these things constantly and forever, stumbling will not be a part of your life. Well, 
I've got much more to say, and my time is quickly coming to a close. I'd like to call Matt Cologne back up, if we could. And I'd like to sing a closing song. Yeah, you guessed it. It's Tim James Meany. <laughs> my friends, may you grow in grace. This is my prayer for myself, Peter's prayer for you, and the prayer of many, many other saints that in our lives we will constantly, day by day, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ.